Well, turn with me to John chapter 12. We'll look at the first 19 verses. We, we opened this portion last week as we moved out of chapter 11 into chapter 12. And this week we're going to slow down a little bit with chapter 12 and consider the the theology that's at work here. I've said this many times. I said it last week. There's a theology to all the history, all the narrative that God gives us in his word. And sometimes we, uh, we get caught, so caught up in the story. Everybody likes a good story. We get caught up in the story and we forget to look for the theology. What is it God is showing us here? Uh, yeah, the story is true. We're, we're not, we're not dehistoricizing. We're, uh, we recognize the, the historical truthfulness of the stories of the Bible. We uh, had the sad occasion reading an email from a dad uh, in another state, far away, north of us, uh, asking me to help. His daughter was encountering some opposition from someone who claimed to be a Christian, who claimed that she believed the Bible was inerrant, but God purposefully put falsehoods in the Bible, was her theory. Well, first of all, that's not inerrancy. Uh, that would mean that God is the author of lies. And we know the scriptures tell us otherwise. But it's important for us sometimes to back off and realize that people have some strange views of the Bible. And one of those strange views is that the things that are in the Bible aren't altogether true. And yet they would say that we can still find good stuff in there that would even bring us to God. Well, we don't believe that around here. We recognize that the Bible is without error and all the details of the stories are factual the way God intended to enter them into use in his holy scriptures. So let's read. As we are turning the page, so to speak, in, in, in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we're moving ever so close to that, that great day when he would sacrifice himself offering the perfect worship to a perfect God, he would then be buried and be raised. And on the, on the days appointed, he would ascend back to heaven, enter into the marvelous session with the Father that he enjoyed from eternity past in the glory. Six days before the Passover. I told you last week that would have been at the end of the, the Sabbath, before the next week when Passover would begin, on that evening, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard 
and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him When he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Let's pray to our great God who gave us this word. Thank you, Lord. We pray that you would enliven our minds, that you would illumine our minds so that we might hear and we might believe. May your spirit guide us into truth. For without the spirit, these will just be dead words on a page. We pray that you would cause them to come to life in our hearts that we might become lovers of Christ, that we might have ears attuned to your spirit, that we might know you, the one true God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we might have everlasting life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Everything you do In life, God will craft and weave into the tapestry of your life for good. For good, if you're his. If you're loved by God and called according to his purpose. I suppose that 
There may be a few in here who've never thought about that. Everything? God uses everything? Well, you know, I seem to have wasted several years. I'll tell you, I struggle with that every once in a while. As, as some of you know, I was, I was in banking for almost seven years before going to seminary. And then I look at friends of mine. Alan, I don't mean that you, you've wasted, an, Alan's wasted a whole life in banking, but no, that's not what I mean. You know what I mean. But then I look at men, particularly, who've been in the gospel ministry since their earliest days. Uh, I particularly, I think of one man in particular, a Scottish friend of mine. I had the privilege of studying under and have known him for several years now. And he's not a lot older than I am. And he's written 50-something books. And he just went from, from school to university, divinity to ministry. And he wrote his first book when he was two. And it's been going like that ever since. And I hate it. No, I don't. But I think, gee, you know, were those seven years in banking, you know, look what he was doing. That's why he's so far ahead of me. Well, but then I realize when I read the Bible that God uses everything to make us who we are and to bring us to where we are. And so... We may not always be conscious of this. Certainly, we're not at every step. And particularly when we're younger, we're not conscious that, wow, God's going to use this. And you may be saying, yeah, but pastor, I mean, banking's bad enough, but you don't know the stuff I've done. Well, yet God even uses that stuff. He does. When Paul says that, he doesn't, he doesn't qualify it. He doesn't say, no, only the good things does God, is he able to use for good in your life. It's just the good things. That's not Paul's point at all, is it? All things. God is able to take and shape and weave them together to use them for good in your life and therefore in the life of others. He says this in the letter to the church at Corinth. He says, Every, everything that's been happening to you, you're going to be able to use this now to help other people. People who've struggled like you've struggled. People who've been successful like you've been successful. People who've had jobs like you've had jobs. People who've not had jobs like you've been without a job at times. All these things are used by God to help others through you and through me. And we're not even conscious of it sometimes. Christ, on the other hand, was conscious at every step that what was happening, what he was doing, what was being done to him, had a divine purpose. And it was working together to save his people from their sins. He was conscious. Nothing Nothing happened 
when he changed the water into wine, he knew that was leading to the fullness of time. When he walked on the water, he knew it was leading to the fullness of time. When he, when he fed the 5,000, when he fed the 4,000 plus at every point, when they came to stone him and he evaded them, it was for the fullness of time. We've just seen the episode with Thomas. Lord, don't you know they're, they're going to kill us? Okay, let's just go die with him. Jesus knew. He knew they, they weren't going to die that day. He knew exactly when it was going to happen. And by the way, we're going to see that the Jews, the Jews make a point at one point, let's don't kill him during Passover. That didn't work out very well, did it? Because that was the fullness of time. And Christ was conscious of that. He was conscious that this is when it's going to happen. It's not going to happen with you stoning me. It's not going to be happening with you pushing me off this cliff. Not going to happen until it's supposed to happen. Because you see, God from eternity had decreed how, when, where, and who. It had all been designed. And it was all with purpose. By the way, I'll make a note here. When we say God did this, that means Jesus had a hand in it too. He didn't just carry out the labors. Sometimes, you know, when we say God, we get rather narrow and we just talk about God the Father. Well, sometimes it is just God the Father that we're reading about in the scriptures. Sometimes it's God the Spirit we're reading about. Sometimes it's God the Son we're reading about. But in this case, the purpose and design of Christ's coming was, was put together by the Godhead. So when we read in Acts, for instance, when, when Peter says, God purposed this. That was God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit purposed this. And God the Son executed. And now God the Spirit is applying it to us. So always keep that in mind as you read. The title of the sermon, The Messiah's Conscious Trek to Triumph. That's what this passage is largely telling us about. What's going on here, Christ is is conscious of everything that's happening. And yet, I don't know if you ever stop and think about this, but as I've already said, we're not always conscious that what's going on right now, God's going to take and use this way or that way. Sometimes we don't even know how he's going to do that. And we don't even know for, for years and years and sometimes decades, oh, that's, that's how this is going to be used. And our consciousness is dull, isn't it? Even when we're conscious, sometimes, you know, it's kind of like uh, those first few moments, the light goes out at night, the Bible goes over, the book we've been reading goes over to the side, the lights go out, 
and we're in this semi-consciousness. And everything's kind of fuzzy. Christ never experienced that. Well, yeah, he experienced the sleepiness and going to sleep because he was man. He shared in our, our humanity completely. But what I'm saying is all these little details of life, there was no fuzziness. There was no dullness. Christ, Christ was, he had this heightened, acute awareness of everything that was going on. Just step, step back sometime and think about that. Unlike us, he was conscious and he was conscious at, at, a, at a height, at a level that we cannot even fathom. It's part of his ways not being our ways and his thoughts not being our thoughts. And by the way, if you're asking what's, the, what's so what, so what is this? That's what makes him a savior and not you or me. Well, we've got to get on to the points, don't we? Because that's just the introduction. Let's consider three remarkable truths about our Savior as John puts, this, puts this, this together for us here. The first is this. Jesus displays his divine initiative toward laying down his life for the sheep. This goes back to John chapter 10, verse 15. And we read this. Chapter 10, verse 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. We just heard a wonderful sermon this morning about that one flock, one shepherd. From Ephesians chapter 2, 11 and following. And now Jesus is doing it. Six days before the Passover, he comes, he comes to this dinner that's being thrown for him, and we have everything start falling in place for our Lord. And it's on his time frame, no one else's. We've already discussed this. The context is one of duress, it's one of oppression. From a human perspective, the Pharisees, chapter 11, verse 53, are ready to kill him. They want to kill him. Verses 53, 56, and 57 of chapter 11. And by the way, no single person, no group of people were going to take his life. This had to be, Jesus had to be the most schemed after and schemed about man on the face of the earth. I love mysteries. I love reading mysteries. I like watching good mysteries, particularly from British television. There's something about the way they do it that's just, we haven't figured it out over here yet. And no, it's not the accent. I got over that a long time ago. Our accents are just as interesting as theirs and just as varied. But in a mystery, there's always scheming going on. But nothing that parallels this, nothing that compares to this. I mean, it was the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and even people on the inside 
Judas. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? The God-man, the man who came to serve, the man who came to seek and to save, and they were against him because he was holy, because he was righteous. John ten eighteen, we see that no one's going to determine the time, and here Jesus is coming, and they think, well, somebody tell us when he comes into town, we're going to arrest him, and you're going to notice for several chapters now, over these next few days, they're going to know plainly where he is, and no one arrests him. Why? Because it wasn't his time. And this is not merely about Jesus dictating his own terms of death. It's about, ultimately, it's about the measureless love of our Savior. Remember what Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Let's remember what sinners are. Sinners are people who hate God. Sinners are people who are alienated from God and toward God. Sinners are people who are at enmity with him. And yet Christ loved sinners. And this is all about it. There's been a lot of men who've been marked out for death over the course of history. There have been many men who have laid low, as we say, so that they wouldn't run into trouble, they wouldn't be hurt by other people. That's not what was unique about Jesus, though he was hated by many and pursued by many, and he had to take it easy sometimes and stay out of sight for a period of time to avoid the death when men wanted him to die. But Jesus does it not to save his own life, but to save sinners. That's the difference. Even Martin Luther, when they decided we need to put him in the castle for a while and protect him, that wasn't to save sinners, that was to save Luther. But Jesus, Jesus went to the mountain. Jesus went to the wilderness. Jesus went all these places to save sinners. Not to save his own life, but to save sinners. He consciously displayed his eternal love for the sheep. We know from this very text that it was initiative toward the cross that was driving Christ. When Judas, when Judas raises up and says this, this, this horrific thing here, and Jesus answers with, leave her alone, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. There he was pointing to the ultimate, that he was going away. He would not always be 
with them. He would be crucified, he'd be buried, he would be raised, and then he would ascend back to heaven. And all on his divine time. Second, Jesus reveals his sovereignty by dictating the time and place. To understand this, we have to go back to John 6. There's a sense in which everything that's starting to pile up right here in chapter 12 is like a, like a, um, a summary. It draws our minds to summarize everything that's happened so far. And one of the things that it draws our minds to is chapter 6. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king... Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He was in absolute control. The word absolute speaks to his sovereignty. You're like, but they could have taken him. No, they couldn't have. You remember one point he says, hey, if you don't, if you don't do this, If you don't do it my way, God will make the stones do it. If you try to do this, the angels will come down. Here's the the thing. And we fall in this trap just like the scribes, Pharisees, and others did. We think we're in control. Far too often. We've checked the checkbook. Everything works. Everything's fine. And then two cars go out within a month. Well, checkbook's not quite as certain as I thought it was. But on the front end, we sure were sure. But Christ, absolute, sovereign, everything, he's got it under control. In Peter, preaching on that great day of Pentecost, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, do you think on any given day from this point forward... That the scribes and Pharisees would have said, Christ orchestrated this. He did it just when he wanted to do it. He's doing everything according to his plan. I'm going to tell you, you would be as crazy as they were to think that. But they thought that. They thought this was playing out according to their plan. But it wasn't. It was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God sovereignly dictated the events. He sovereignly dictated the secondary means. Did you see it there? He determined it from eternity. And then he used men in time and space to do it. He was in control. They thought they were in control. And Peter's saying, you were never in control. From eternity, God was in control. 
And this was all his scheme, his plan, and you, you were just part of it. That's a good lesson for us. Young folks, you know, I'm looking down here because we always, almost always have the halls, and now we've got the cars back there, and we got, we, and I've just realized, I used to look down here and say children, well, the hall children aren't, they're not so children anymore. Well, Matthias maybe, but, but listen, you need to learn this lesson early in life. You and I are not in control, and that's good. Because if you and I are in control, things are in real trouble. God's in control. And he is so in control that he can use everybody around us to accomplish what he wants for us and what we need. So before you go off thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do. This is a mess. I don't know how I get out of this. Pray. Pray to the Lord who has determined everything for you, is working everything out in your life for good. Peter said, God sovereignly dictated the events, including the secondary means, lawless men killing Jesus. And they thought they were rid of Jesus and all they did was accomplish the salvation of his people. They just thought people were following Jesus up until now. But they, in Randy Backman's own words, they ain't seen nothing yet. When, Jay, when they put Christ on the cross, they lift cross up, he drew all men to himself. All his people. And it's been a constant flow of God's people following him, leaving behind the things of this world ever since. And you and I, just as I read earlier, Jesus said, not just these sheep around me now, but those who will come later. And we're those who came later. We're among the masses. And it's all because the Jews misread Jesus and Jesus went to the cross at his time, in his, in his own way. Even though those wicked men were planning to kill Jesus, they had determined it would not be during the Feast of Passover, as I said. We read about that in Matthew's account. And yet Jesus sovereignly determined that it would be during the Feast. The book of Hebrews says that he was that Paschal Lamb. That's why it had to be during the Passover feast, because he was the Passover lamb. Peter says it just as, just as, just as clearly when he says that we're not saved with things of this world. But it was the precious, spotless, blameless lamb of God. And he sovereignly gave himself. In fact, Hebrews chapter 7 says, in the context of the great high priest offering himself the sacrifice. He was consciously dictating the course of his life. Finally, 
Jesus declares his Messiahship by fulfilling scripture. That's verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming. So they took branches of palm trees. What a contrast. Chapter 11 ends. If you see him, come tell us so we can arrest him. And they don't. What do they do? They take up palm branches. They go strip the palms. They bring in the branches to fulfill the scripture of, of, of Psalm 118. And they come in and they see their king into the, into the city. God's sovereignty. God's time. The large crowd comes. They're waving the palm tree branches. They're screaming, Hosanna. God, oh, save. And then, they, then we've got the quote, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Psalm 118 is part of the Hallel. It's what they used as they would go up to worship. They're worshiping their God and their King. That's part of the story of history that you miss if you're not careful. That's part of the theology of what's going on here. In the early 20th century, actually late 19th into the early 20th century, there was this, uh, this, this theological question that was cycling about. And it was this, was Jesus conscious of his messiahship? There were books written, mostly from liberal theologians, biblical scholars that were skeptical about the veracity of Scripture. And their conclusion was, no, he, he wasn't. He wasn't conscious that he was the Messiah. Sometimes it's under the cloak of the messianic secret. This was secret. Jesus was going on here in secret and nobody knew really what was going on. Now I'm going to tell you, we've read through half of chapter 12 now, chapters 1 through 12 plus, and you didn't, those scholars didn't get that from reading the gospel accounts. They got it from their liberal theology that dictated how they were going to read the scriptures. B.B. Warfield answered it with his, his great volume, The Lord of Glory. And then Gerhardus Voss came along, the self-disclosure of Jesus. That no, this was not secret. This was not an unconsciousness on Jesus' part. This was Jesus fully conscious, out in public, open for the whole world to know who he was. He was the Messiah. He was the King. He was the anointed one of God. Blessed is he who came to save sinners from their sins. Especially clear to us is the messianic uh, illustration here in chapter chapter 12, verse 15. Uh, That quotation, after the Psalm 118 quotation, we come right back, Jesus found this donkey why did he find the donkey? Well, because it had been prophesied from Zechariah chapter 9. We got, now we got the morning reference that was wrongly in, is in the right place now, is Zechariah chapter 9, 
comes into play here. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. A stallion would have portrayed him as a warring, conquering, military king. But the donkey was the peaceful king, the peacetime king. Now, why did he choose a donkey? Because it certainly wasn't a peaceful time. They're out to get him. But it's what he was doing. Right? It was what he was about. He wasn't there as a military leader. He was there as the king of glory, the prince of peace. You remember this morning in Ephesians chapter 2? What was the message? The message that, that conquered the hearts of both the Gentile and the Jew, Paul says, was the message of peace. Jesus is the message of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. Y'all all have seen it on the little church signs or bumper stickers. N-O Jesus. N-O peace. K-N-O Jesus. K-N-O peace. If you've got no Jesus, you got no peace. If you know Jesus savingly, then you know real peace that passes human comprehension. That's why he came in on the donkey. It was not just to fulfill scripture, but the scripture was written for him to fulfill it, to remind them that that was his kingship. And the waving of the branches, the people were acknowledging that. They were acknowledging it. They weren't, they weren't confused about this. They may have not known the full import, the full significance of what Jesus' entry into the city at this time was, but they knew what the scripture said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Note two. The purpose. How John concludes. Now, if, if I told you right now, close your Bibles. And just, if you haven't read it, if you weren't reading it with me earlier, you should be able to guess at this point how John concludes this. What's the purpose of the book? So that we might believe. Right? The whole book is a book full of historical reasons to believe. Did you see it? It's there. His disciples didn't understand this at first. They became conscious later. Jesus was conscious even now. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another. Now see, this is not as, as in your face as John's been doing it where he says, and many believed. But it's right there, isn't it? The Pharisees said, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It takes faith, folks, to go after Jesus. There's none who seek him. There are none who are righteous. They're going after him because he's the Savior. He's been declared the king of Israel by the masses. 
and the people are following. They're going with him. They have a savior. They have a king. The question is, do you? Do you have a savior? Do you have a king? Are you waving the palm branches? Do you recognize that he's the king of glory, that he's the prince of peace, and that the very fact that he rode into Jerusalem on that day, appointed at his time, not their time, that he became the Lord of glory and the prince of peace for all his people. Not just then, but throughout time. And again, the question is, is he your prince of peace? Do you know that peace that passes understanding? It only comes through faith. It only comes through following him. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's be among those who go after Jesus. Father, thank you for this evening. And we ask now that you bless this time. That we would be conscious, more conscious every day of your sovereignty, of your design, your love for sinners, and that you do everything at a perfect time, at a perfect pace for our perfection, to save us and make us like Jesus. If there's any here tonight who don't know this Jesus and don't understand this peace and don't desire this perfection of salvation from sin, May this be the night that they see Jesus and go after him. Only you can do it for us, Lord. We pray that you will. In his name, amen.